going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8. Let's get us up to speed. There are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each of these Gospels tells a story, the story of Jesus. Each of the four Gospels, in their telling of the Jesus story, always focus on the end more than the beginning. The burial of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is the part the writers spend the most time on. The Christ suffers, he's crucified, he dies, he's buried, he rises again. This is Easter, right? Celebrated every single year. But the story doesn't end with him rising again. How do we get from the resurrection tomb to Flint City Church on Sunday morning 2,000 years later? Well, before the Christ ascends to heaven, before the Christ goes to his father to intercede for his children, he tells his followers, 120 people, now here's the deal, 120 people, if you count what's in this building, what I preached to this morning at the Carriage Town Homeless Shelter, and who we minister to at the East Side Church Plant, there's more of us than there were of them. 120 people, okay? Christ tells them, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to take the message of my redeeming death to your neighbors, to the, the land of Samaria next to you, and to all the nations. Now at first, they obey pretty easily. Peter preaches an incredible message. 2,000 are saved in a single day, and the church begins to grow and grow and grow. At first, all the original believers are all Jewish people. At first, it seems like the way, because they weren't called Christians at first. They weren't called, we were not called Christians. Our ancestors were called followers of the way. And the followers of the way at first seem like they might be another Jewish denomination, like the Baptists, Presbyterians, or like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, okay? But it was a Jewish faith. Everyone in church looked the same, sounded the same. But a guy named Stephen preaches. And Stephen really reveals that the, the, the message of Jesus is bigger than the Jewish faith. It's bigger than their nation, and it's way bigger than their temple. And a man named Saul hears this message. And Saul ain't having it. Saul decides these guys are going to change everything. i got to stop them. And Saul, this fame, he's a very famous guy in history. Saul begins pulling the church down brick by brick. He goes door to door knocking. Do you believe in the Christ? And if you do, he will arrest you whether you're a man or a woman. Don't care. He brings you to jail and then to your death. 
but his desire to burn the church down fails because everyone like, leaves Jerusalem. They all run away. And they end up all over the place preaching the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus. And a guy named Philip, one of Stephen's good friends who just got murdered, Philip ends up in Samaria. The place Christ told him to go is like, you go to Jerusalem first and then Samaria. See, Jesus intends to bring his message to the entire world. But for the Jews, they're kind of like greedy with it. They don't want to give it away. So the first step to the nations is to the biracial Samaritans. What do I mean by that? I'm a Mexican man. I'm Latino. My wife is not. She's white. Uh, French, right? French, German. Irish, German. Irish, German. A lot of beer in your family, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, so Irish, German. So we come together and have children, and our children are biracial. They come from two cultures. When my kids go to my house, it's a Mexican household. It's loud and exuberant and just wild. My friends about Angie in my house, like, why is everyone yelling? I'm like, nobody's yelling. This is how we talk. You know, this is Latino culture. They go to my wife's family, this Irish-German culture, which is more proper, more polite, where in, in, my, in my family's house, there's bottles of beer. At her family's house, there's glasses of wine. Oh, ha, ha. you know, oh, Chante. And my kids experience these two different worlds, and they live in between there. And sometimes it's tough for a kid to live in two different cultures. There was a movie that came out on Netflix recently about the black experience, and they cast that girl from The Office and from Parks and Rec, that Roshanda girl, Rashida Jones. She's cast to be in this show, or this movie about the black experience. And the internet blows up saying, she is not truly black, she can't speak for us, even though her father is. No one knows? Oh, look it up. Anyways, uh, <laughs> she, she's, she's part of the black community. Because she's biracial, though, some people don't think she can speak for the black experience. So being biracial can be very hard for a child. Well, the Samaritans are biracial. They're half Jewish, and they're half Assyrian. And there's been racial tension for generations between these two peoples. The Jews think they're better than the Samaritans. The Jews, when they travel, they literally go around Samaria. But Christ says, you got to go to them. See, it's funny, the Jews are going to be so slow to spread their faith. First, it's going to be half Jewish blood. Then it's going to be half Jewish faith. You'll see how it works. But we're in, this, in Acts 8, Philip goes to Samaria... And this is his first episode of sharing the gospel in this place called Samaria. Verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Before I read on, I want you to look at some... I want you to, in your brain, if you have a pencil or a Bible, write it down in your Bible. Here are some words to look for. When you see words and themes repeated, you want to take 
you want to pay attention to that. And there's some words repeated in this passage. Listen very carefully. We put some words on the screen to look for, okay? He amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. Because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. So we meet Simon, the magician. Now, he's not David Copperfield. Magician in that day, in our day, magician is like, you know, right, you pull the Kleenex out of your, your what sleeve? I don't have them. I don't wear them ever, so I don't know what they're called. Um, it's not like flowers, like, ba Magicians in the ancient Near East, if you want to read what they are, read the book of Daniel. Magicians are like witch doctors, okay? If you need someone cursed, you come to this guy, you know, kill a chicken and pour blood on their, their land or their house, or, or like a, write their name out, pour blood. Magicians in this world are very kind of like they're sorcerers. They're superstitious. And he's one of these guys who does things, he's very good at it, and he's gained some fame for himself. He was a somebody in this culture. But something changes. But when, they, when the people believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the people that were paying attention to Simon are leaving those superstitious beliefs and turning to Jesus. They're being baptized and being brought into this new body called the church, into the family of God. So even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. How is this guy doing it? Simon's like, how is Philip doing this? Philip prays for the sick, and they are healed. How can anyone do such things? So he's, he's around this, okay? But something happens, verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem... Now, Jerusalem is like Christianity headquarters, okay? That's where it's all headquartered. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So, the, the apostles at Jerusalem hear what's happening in Samaria, and they send their two big guns. There ain't no bigger guns than Peter or John. They're the big dogs. And they're sent to make, they're sent to make sure the things in Samaria are all on the level. So they come down. In verse 15, they came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We stop right there. Peter and John get there, and the Samaritans believe the truth about Jesus. They believe he lived and died, was crucified and rose again. They believe the facts about Jesus, but apparently they had not been filled with his Holy Spirit. So they knew the truth about Christ up here. They had not felt his power come and dwell them. Because for us, listen, for us, following Jesus is not about agreeing with facts. Following Christ 
part of it. I believe the right things, but also Christ promises we meet him. He gives us his Holy Spirit to indwell and live within us. It is experiential. I don't believe in a fact I follow a person who still speaks, who still moves. This, they were missing it. So Peter and John come to say, listen, you can know God in the here and now. They pray for them, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Last week, I was a week in college, and on Friday, we all, the students, shared their personal testimonies. They shared how God had met them. There's 25 of us, and I heard stories of such pain and loss, I couldn't believe it. People burying 22-month-old children. A woman shared about getting married at 20 years old and her husband cheating on her time and time again and how she left her husband, left the church. And she literally, her opening line was, when I was 20, I left my husband, I left the church, and I left God. That was her opening line of her, of her story. And as people shared their stories, many of us started just crying. And we began feeling God move in the room, and we ended up praying for one another and singing songs of God's goodness. It was powerful. Because if you know the Christ, Christ is in here doing things. I don't, we don't just believe truth. We're filled with the Spirit. We understand? It's head and heart. Understood? Now, Peter and John pray for the Samaritans. They receive the Spirit. That's what happens next. Verse 17. They laid their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given to the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So here's my question. And it's not rhetorical, I want you to answer. Don't got to raise your hand or nothing, just yell it out. Here's the question. Why did Simon ask for this power? What do you think? From what you know about this guy, why would he ask for this power? To make himself more famous. I think you're right, Ricky. This guy, back in the day, was a somebody. Remember the words we use? People were amazed by him. They paid attention to him. They called him great. Well, then, he goes from being on stage, from being in the seats, and Philip's the man, and Peter's the man, and John's the man. He goes, listen, listen, give me some of that. I'll give you this money. I got all this money from my career magician. I'll give you my money. You give me this power. And then, I'll be the man again, right? I'll be somebody again. That's why he does what he does. And this is the point of today's message. I want to tell you this. Beware the seduction of fame. Beware the seduction of the crowds. 
I want to read a quote to you from Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says this, Classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence, religious meaning, God meaning, apart from God as revealed in the cross of Jesus. One, through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs. Two, through the ecstasy of recreational sex. And three, through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but almost never against the crowds. But a crowd destroys the spirit as thoroughly as excessive drink and depersonalized sex. I really do feel that crowds are a worse danger than drink or sex. You never hear pastors preach about the love of the crowd. You know why? Because pastors are on stage. They don't want to preach against themselves. In our culture, this is very, very uniquely needed to be heard. Our, okay, when I was young, when I graduated high school, 18 years old, 17 years old, 16 years old, I don't know, whenever I graduated, our principal gave a talk at our graduation ceremony. And I never forget what he said. He said to all of us graduates, follow the money. Because my generation, Gen X, wanted the money. Want to be rich. Our songs were that way, man. This generation, the millennials and Gen Z, want something else. For them, there's something more valuable than money. For Gen Z, fame is more desirous than money. There's a whole new class of people called influencer in our culture. An influencer literally does nothing of value for our society. Sorry, influencers. I'm not against them, I'm just saying they're not doctors. They can't even throw a football. They just, for some reason, they influence. I don't know. They can put on makeup real good. Um, influencers gain a lot of fame. And, that's because, and there's many of them, and it's, in our culture, fame is very much to be desired. I quote, I quote Eugene Peterson, now I'll quote Adam Durst. When I look at the, te- this is a song. When I look at the television, I want to see me staring right back at me. We all want to be big stars, but we don't know why and we don't know how. But when everybody loves me, I'm going to be just as happy as I can be. From the song Mr. Jones, the Counting Crows' first radio hit was about their desire to be famous. If everyone knew us, if we, if we got on the radio, we would be happy. Fame would fulfill us. Now, we know that fame cannot fulfill the whole of identity in our, in our lives. It can't. Tom Brady, in an interview after his third ring, how many did he get in the end? Six, seven, eight, ten? I don't know. He's got a lot of them. After Brady's third ring, he said, this is my third Super Bowl. Days after he won the whole whole thing, he said, this can't be all there is because I still feel so empty. He was the man. Jim Carrey said recently, one of the most influential comedians of my generation, he said, I wish everyone could have all the family desired to see how empty it truly is. The guys that got it are like, 
It's nothing. But us down here, we all still want it. And you don't even need to get global fame. We like, we don't mind being little, uh, big fishes in little ponds, do we? Maybe you're a big fish in your company or in your dorms, in your family. But the point is, some part of us loves to be a somebody. Now, this is true for a lot of different categories. First, for pastors, if you want to be in ministry, beware of the seduction of fame. I have seen pastors disqualified from ministry due to sin, removed from the pulpit, and six months later start a new church two miles on the street because they don't know how not to be on stage. That's not God's calling. That's their ego eating them alive. This is true in the arts. If you're artistic, if you have talent in the arts, whether it's music or painting or design, at Wheaton College last week, we had a professional, we read a book by this professional jazz musician who's a professor at Trinity. And this guy told the class, this guy was a world-renowned saxophone player, and he said to us that he, he loved playing so much, and he loved the crowd's applause so much, he realized his saxophone became an idol for him. That talent became, people saying you're good at your instrument became what he needed to feel like he was a person. His identity was in his talent. But when you do that, what happens if your talent goes away? Right? If your identity is in what you do and what you do can't be done, who are you? I'm a preacher. I preach. Last year, I almost lost my voice forever. I was scheduled for a massive surgery that if it was gone wrong, I would have had to stop preaching. Who is a preacher who can't preach? I'll tell you who I would have been. A child of God. Because my identity cannot be in what I do. My identity must be in who I am in Christ. And it's true for you too. Don't let your talents become your identity. Because your talents can be taken. Your talents can fall down. It can be true in business. Let's say you're in business and you become a somebody in your business. My next door neighbor in college started a business and became a self-made millionaire. It happens. Now, before I go further, I'm not saying it is bad to have influence. If God gives you favor, receive the favor. It's okay to be a somebody if God makes you a somebody. What I'm saying is you can't live for that. You can't be addicted to the crowd's love because the crowd is fickle. Let's say in business you become a somebody in your field and the Wall Street Journal calls you for like, or let's say Flint Beats calls you. Let's go a little smaller. Flint Beats calls you for your opinion and you feel like somebody. Your bio get longer and longer. You know, I've written articles for these four Flint Journals. Your identity cannot be in your success. And social media, watch your kids, you guys. Our kids, my kids, YouTube's, you ever heard YouTube's a weird thing? You guys know this, YouTube's weird? My kids watch kids play video games. 
When I was a kid, we're all like, let me have a turn, let me have a turn. We wanted to play. Like, if I didn't have a controller, I hated my life. My kids are like, I want to watch some kid in a different state play a video game. I'm like, this is weird to me, but it's big. There are all kinds of YouTube people who play video games to watch. And my kids have asked me already many times, can I have a YouTube channel? They already feel the temptation to put themselves out there to get followers and likes. Imagine how that works. Young kid puts out a video, gets 100 likes. They feel, I'm so awesome, people like me. Next video comes out with only 10 likes. I guess no one likes me anymore. And it crushes that little spirit. That's bad for children. That's dangerous for kids. It teaches kids that their value is based on how many people give them that desirous thumbs up. Be careful. And you might be, not just kids, we're the same way. There's studies done that people's likes to our Facebook post have the same dopamine release as some drugs. That look at your phone, you're like, oh man, people love my stuff, I'm awesome. It happens so subtly. Be careful not... What if you say, here's a dumb one. On your birthday, you look, you got 100 happy birthdays on Facebook. Last year, I got 130. I guess I'm less popular this year. Aw. Like, you can't make the crowd's love your identity. Because the crowd is fickle. And they're not real. Like, literally, half the Facebook things are robots. They're not real. You got to be careful of giving Placing your identity in the cheer and the love of the crowds. You got to be careful. And let's go even smaller. You can't even do it for the praise of your own family. Parents, if you're loving, if you're sacrificially loving your children, hoping that something to tell you, thank you so much, they may never say that. They may take all your love and move to thinking Oregon and never call, punk kids. Uh, my, my, I'm just, my kids didn't do that. They're upstairs, they're upstairs in, the, in the kids' program. I'm not doing this so my kids go someday, Dad, thank you so much for taking us to the park that one Saturday in, in July in 2021. You may receive no praise or no glory for doing the good things you do, but you don't do it for the praise or the glory. For many of you parents, especially you moms, a lot of what you do get no love ever. The late nights, the sacrifices. Like, there's a reason on Mother's Day we go all out, because moms, you guys do a lot. A lot of thankless. I'm at home sometimes. Like today, I was next to my son on the couch. And he needed a toy open. And he goes, Mom, can you open this toy? She goes, your dad's right next to you. And I was like, hey, I'm a parent too. But they, they naturally just, Mom, Mom, Mommy, Mom. Like, that's what they do all day long. Ooh. Angie wants to leave for like three days next year to go with her sister somewhere. And I was like, Mama, can you come over? Oh, no. <laughs> come on over, Grandma. We need you. Uh, but I uh, know. 
But Simon loved the crowds. And even once he started becoming a Christian, even as a Christian, he still longed for it. Listen to what Peter says to him. Peter says, so Simon says, can I have some, here's money, give me the power. Peter says, verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He calls Simon bitter. Simon's been sitting in the the seats for a while. And the whole time sitting in the seats, he's angry at Philip. He's bitter in his heart like, should be me on stage, not you. And hate fills his heart. Bitterness is a root that's deep down in the human heart. You can't let the love of the crowd make you bitter. Here's a free one for you. The size of your platform does not equal your worth to God. If Flint City Church, if there are more than 100 people, does it mean God's like, your church is small and not important? doesn't mean that. If your place in your company, your work, you're never the manager, you're never the owner, doesn't mean you're not a doesn't mean you're not loved by God. You don't need to have a thousand people respect you to be doing the thing God has called you to do. So let's say you're one of these people who you love the cheer of the crowd. What should you do? Response number one, you got to repent. You got to go to God and say, God, I love being a somebody. Help me. I have to pray this prayer often. When I first started going to ministry, I wanted to be a somebody. I wanted to pastor a a thousand, two thousand person church. I wanted to get invited to all the conferences and speak. That was my goal for a long time. I wanted to be a somebody. And I often have to pray and lay that thing down because I'm afraid it will eat me. This last week I was at Wheaton College and a few people invited me to come preach at their churches across America. Very kind invitations. I had to say no for a few reasons. One, I had to say no because I'm just too busy right now with the church plant here in Flint and I'm doing two classes at Wheaton and I'm already, I'm already, it's, I'm already just stretched a little too thin. I can't be traveling and preaching across America. But two, I have to watch my heart because part of me wants to be somebody. If that's you, if you love the crowds and you need the crowds, and you know what? That need for the crowds could be as small as one. You ever heard of codependence? Some people need to be needed. And they'll stay in an abusive relationship. As long as that abuser needs them, they'll stay. Because they need that abuser. 
they need that abuser to need them to feel like they are a person, to give them self-worth that's just as dangerous. You can't live for the love of the crowd or the spouse. You got to repent. Two, you got to confess. Simon said, pray for me that I may be delivered from this. If you have that, you need to tell somebody that. I have people I talk to in my life, and I tell them, they know my weaknesses, and they watch over my life so I don't go crazy and try to become a somebody. I'll end with this story. During the stories told at Wheaton, a man told this story, and it shook my world. This man was a businessman down in Lubbock, Texas. Middle of nowhere, Texas. And he was a somebody. His company was doing well. This guy's invited to the big parties, the good parties, the cool parties. He's one of the cool kids. He decides, you know what? I'm a big fish in a small pond. I'm going to move to Austin and become a big fish in a big pond, right? Because Austin's no joke. Austin's legit. So he moves to Austin. Transplants to business. Starts running and gunning. And guess what? Austin ain't the suburbs, yo. And nobody cares that he's there. He's a nobody there. The company doesn't grow. The company shrinks. It shrinks so much he's forced to get another job, he becomes a junior high teacher. Which is a great thing to do. Great thing to do. You're a teacher. I'm not, I'm not dissing on you at all. If I was in a pastor, I'd be a teacher. There you go. Well, I'm both. Yeah, yeah. He, but he went from chilling with the mayor to giving seventh graders spelling tests. And he felt the change. And one night he's, he's up late, he has anxiety, he's feeling upset. He's like, God, I thought I, thought I heard you call me to Austin. God, I prayed to you, and I'm here, nothing's working out. God, where, where? Like he's just feeling all upset. And he wakes his wife up. His wife is seven months pregnant. He wake, you don't wake her up. You never wake her up seven months pregnant. You let her sleep. He wakes her up. Baby, what, what, what? Wait till he talk to you. She, she, he, he makes sure she gets up so he can talk to her. He goes, babe, I think we made a mistake. I think we, mis- we, I think we misheard God. We weren't supposed to come. He's like, what do you mean? He goes, babe, back home, this was going good, and I was, I was doing great, and I was beloved, and here I'm a nobody. Maybe we misheard from God. And, dude, this is what the wife says. What a woman. And she's exhausted. Two in the morning, she goes, we heard from God to come here. The problem is, you haven't heard from God since. If you've been listening to God, you would know your identity is not in you, but in Christ. Now go to the living room and leave me alone. And she laid down and went to sleep. (laughs) What a woman! Get broke out! And it woke him up. I tell you the same thing. We cannot be Simon. We cannot look for identity in the love of the crowds. We can't, being somebody cannot be the goal of our life. If God grants that, let him give it. But we don't chase that. We are faithful to what God has given us, and he gives the increase. If God's called you to love your neighbors and love your family and love your small little job, you do that and be grateful for it. Our identity must be in Christ. The rest falls down. The rest changes. 
The rest can be taken. We must find our identity in Christ. If we look to the crowds, all we will find there are lies. The crowds will leave you. They'll betray you. It's all smoke and mirrors. Let us as a people find our comfort, identity in Christ. And if we can do that, we can live anywhere, endure anything, and continue to bring glory to the God we say we love. With that said, let us pray. Father in heaven, you so much for your word that is true. This man, Simon, he didn't want you. He wanted what you would give him. He wanted to be a somebody. As we serve in the city of Flint, Michigan, help us be content with being nobodies. We are in a small city. The press has left. No one cares about us no more. We don't do this for the cameras. And we don't do this for the blog post. We do this because we are called here. And we love our neighbors. And we love the people. And we love you. Help us be content with where you've called us. Content with what you've given us. Content with the blessings and the talent you've bestowed upon us, Lord. Help our identity be in you and you alone. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.